This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello, everyone. My name is Seth Dare. I'm here with JJ Jen Flown, and today we are going to talk about the comfort women of the Japanese military during World War II. Yep, and we've had, I think, trigger warnings or sort of warnings for like abandon all hope he who enter here sort of the equivalents for our podcast before this is going to be another day where we have that yeah we will have some graphic descriptions and quotes from survivors as well as just in general sort of the subject matter that we're talking about today we're going to be talking about the mass rape and murder of primarily east asian women uh, during world war ii by the Japanese military. Normally we try to, I think, we try to put sort of humor or fun or as much of a positive spin as is humanly possible. And I don't see how that's going to be possible for this one today. So this is this is going to be heavy. I don't recommend doing this sober. Uh, or <laughs> if this is a day that you want to be good and jolly. I've been thinking about what we were going to start with, and I think we will actually start with some more basics and Mm -hmm. then get into some of the narratives. Some of those may be triggering, and I do realize that triggers can vary for people, but reading some of this, I feel emotionally affected. So if this is the type of thing that is concerning, we'll tell you when we're going to get into that. And uh, yeah, also, I want to say hello to our listeners in Japan, because our statistics show that we have people that listen regularly there. Thank you for listening. I hope this is of value to you. And if you have any feedback, please let us know. We also now have some people from Saudi Arabia. So what up, new listeners? Hi. Welcome. Sorry, we're going to get super fun with this. Uh, Also, too, like just, just again to throw out a warning for those of you who aren't aware of sort of the history of comfort women or even what those two words mean together. This is what I do for a living, right? I research human trafficking specifically related to the issues of gender and oftentimes sex work. And this makes me really uncomfortable, this topic today. So while I deeply do hope you listen, like be kind to yourself and be aware that this is not easy in any way, shape or form. So one way I'll introduce it is just to say that I've spent a couple years at the University of Denver at the uh, Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. JJ and I spent two years together in the Human Trafficking Center Mm -hmm. with Professor Claude Destray and some other very smart and wonderful people. And I only heard a passing allusion to this Mm -hmm. and wasn't really truly aware of what it actually comfort women meant until I saw a film recently called The Apology which was a really great film because it focused on three grandmas as they're called from Korea, the Philippines and I believe Japan and it was told mostly in the voices of them and their family which is Something that we don't always see in anti-trafficking is primarily having people speak and having them speak as human beings who, who mm-hmm. live lives but, yeah. but had trauma versus t- 
talking about them, which is what part of this will be today. But that it's it's a movie I highly recommend, where it's emotional but also has some hope and humanity thrown in, thrown in. But my other main reason to say that is I wasn't all that knowledgeable. And so I had seen movies like Memoirs of a Geisha and knew that they had prostitution, but that's about what I know. So if you don't know much, lots of us haven't. But JJ knew something about comfort women. But it's it's weird what I knew about them. I, again, you know, as an American who grew up in a kid who was really into history, I made it all the way through undergrad, including an undergrad that focused on Chinese language, history, and culture, with only hearing passing references to comfort women. It was only when I was actually living and working in China, particularly when I was living down south in China and some of the areas that had seen sort of direct fighting and conflict with the Japanese, that I started to hear stories from people my age about, you know, their grandparents or their great-grandparents and about these women, these like sort of untouchable women. And then I had read a few uh, newspaper reports as these women actually started to, to pass away and prior to their passing as they tried and failed to sue the Japanese government, which we're going to talk about later on. So I had known about it, but I had kind of stumbled into it. I mean, not in a way super dissimilar from you, Seth. You would think that it would be something that would have come up during our formal education, but it, it really didn't until I started my, my PhD program and I made it a point to research it. But in terms of something that's been mentioned in a class and given like great detailed instruction, it doesn't seem to happen. And I don't know if it doesn't happen because it gets lumped in with sort of the other atrocities that happened during World War II as sort of a we talk about the Holocaust, we talk about sort of the treatment of POWs by the Japanese, we talk about the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and we're like, that's just enough. You know, those broad strokes are certainly enough human suffering for one day. Or if it's just that it makes people uncomfortable, because we are talking about forced prostitution and forced rape on a mass scale. If it's because the Japanese government continues to deny that it happened... <laughs> Which we'll get to. Not so much a denial, but not a full taking ownership. That's, yeah, well, they say that Nanking was just a small skirmish. So we'll we'll take that for what it is. And mm -hmm. then the the final thing is that I also wonder if it's because when it first happened, the U.S., Britain, and the other allies didn't necessarily respond. They acknowledged that it was happening they allowed it to continue. They kind of, I think the the feeling was that they had bigger fish sort of out there to fry. And that kind of goes directly against the narrative we all want to believe in, particularly, you know, involving World War II of, at least from an American perspective, that we were the good guys. You know, that it was more than anything that that was our last big, huge war where we were fighting for ideals. You know, and I'm sure that some of you will tweet me with really angry comments. That's fine. I like them. But it's, I don't know why. I, I just know that we don't talk about it and that's a disservice. I don't understand why this doesn't come up even in high schools when we talk about World War II units. This needs to be discussed. It's important. 
whether it was one woman or a thousand women, it's important. But as time has gone on and more and more numbers has been have been released, this was massive. This was huge. Thousands of women were taken from their homes and suffered and died and then continued to suffer long after it ended if they were lucky enough to survive the occurrence. And it's we're doing a disservice not to honor them and acknowledge what they went through. So there's so many places we could go. I'm going to mention what the Japanese government has acknowledged. Okay. And then I'll hand it over to JJ to do a 10,000 foot view since I think she'll do that better. It'll be very ranty though. <laughs> I'm very angry, Seth. So what did the government acknowledge? That the Japanese military was directly or indirectly involved and with a slant toward indirectly in the establishment and management of comfort stations and the transfer of comfort women. And yes, with recruitment, in many cases, they were recruited against their will through coaxing, coercion. And yes, uh, the military sometimes took part in recruitment. That it, the comfort stations themselves could be a coercive atmosphere. That it happened a lot in the Korean Peninsula. That military comfort women is, quote, an act with the involvement of the military authorities of the day that severely injured the honor and dignity of many women. And the government of Japan would like to take this opportunity once again to extend its sincere apologies and regrets. But that has been somewhat insufficient in that one of the biggest factors here, which we'll get into is it wasn't an incidental thing. The Japanese military, and this is proven with some documents that we'll quote, was instrumental in running this program. And the apologies have stopped short of having true reparations or doing things very directly to take ownership of this issue. And, and of what I've read, that wasn't until 1993 that they got that far. So hey, it's great you did that, but as we get to the point where most identified comfort women aren't alive anymore, it's getting more and more hollow. But now, JJ, what is a comfort woman? What is this about? Okay, well, for, first to kind of your thing, for me, I find the apology to be absolute bullshit. And my reason for that is, is that they don't, if it doesn't acknowledge what a comfort woman actually was and how it came about, then it's not a true apology. So maybe that provides a good lead in mm -hmm. and lets everybody know my personal opinion. So some of the few things that you need to know, whether you know a lot about Japan or World War II or anything like that, don't worry. That's actually not super important. But what you do need to know is that going into World War II, Japan and Japanese society actually had really well organized and pretty open systems and sort of hierarchies of prostitution. Sex work is a known thing and acknowledged. It's actually not super different from sort of sex work in the United States, where you have mistresses, you have brothels, you have cabaret girls, you have street prostitution. And the difference between a prostitute and a geisha? Well, geishas are such a, in Japan, are, are such a niche portion of society mm -hmm where depending on the type that you were and who you were working under, 
and the sort of abilities that you have because you're expected to be a performer, whether it was dancing, singing, telling jokes, you know, a combination thereof, you might not even be participating in sex work at all. It's more of the intimacy, sort of that one-on-one connection. What we would almost call, I guess the closest thing now is sort of like a host-hostess relationship where people go out and pay people just to spend time with them and drink with them, but not necessarily to have sexualized conduct. Now that contact, that sexual contact could happen and often did happen in sort of relationships not super different from kind of like sugar babies, (laughs) sugar daddies now. Um, But because it was such a closed sort of portion of society you had to as a child enter into kind of a house and then go through like numerous trainings numerous types of testing you could leave or if you failed any of the testings along the way if you're somebody like me for example who has like no ability to carry a tune no musical ability Mm -hmm. no acting ability and can't like really walk in a straight line without falling over like you weren't going to move up because performance was such a big part of it. I get the impression Geisha was more for the elite and prostitutes could be for anyone. Yeah, so Geisha more for elite and then the hierarchy moves downwards too. I mean, you also have like you have formalized mistresses that are a one-on-one relationship. You have uh, just kind of like in actually U.S. society pre-1950s, you have actresses and, and opera singers and things are considered to be kind of available they need patrons if you will and and then it moves down from brothels sort of bar girls to street prostitution that's not super different but so just so everybody knows that's present and so what happens when world war ii starts is that the japanese government which manages side note all of these things they're receiving taxes from everyone involved, I think, except for people at the street prostitution level, right? When they start, well, when they become engaged in World War II, one of the things that they start worrying about is that their soldiers are going to participate in mass rape. And why they're most worried about this, about these young men, because they have a huge wide-scale draft, as well as due to a variety of things like cult of personality of the emperor uh people a rise of nationalism people are volunteering so they have a lot of young men out in the field and so the way to keep these guys from going out and raping and then having mass venereal disease spread in a time before really good antibiotics that would clear those up they say well we're going to establish basically comfort women stations or we're going to establish particular areas or particular stations And just like we would send soldiers in to get fuel for their cars or to get new ammo or to pick up new uniforms, we're going to have women that they can go to that will service them. Now, initially, this is actually served by women who are prostitutes in Japan. They basically do a call out. And if you're a fan of military history, there's always been kind of this idea of sort of the camp sex worker, women who follow Uh, military campaigns and serve the men there in exchange for money or other services. This is not super different. The problem is, is that eventually they run out of women who are volunteering and, and willing to go. And also the treatment of these women becomes very, very harsh very quickly. So what then happens is we in... So the first conversation is established in Shanghai in 1932, because remember... If you're just listening in, 
Japan and China are at war long before <laughs> World War II is sort of like the Americans define it breaks out. Okay. So they establish these comfort stations in China. Japanese soldiers are going to see Japanese women who are there willingly. Eventually, they run out of those women. So they start bringing in women forcibly from Japan. And in particular, where they're bringing them in from are women who would be considered sort of ethnic minorities. So like Okinawan women, people who are considered sort of slightly lesser. There are also prostitutes who didn't agree to go, who are just like yanked off the street. So when we're talking about these women, it's important to note that Japanese women were also equally victimized by the Japanese government and military. This wasn't just a Japan on the world crime. They hurt their own people, too. Right. Well, there was some supply and demand that initially bringing in people through the existing prostitution system. Mm -hmm. But then as they had to keep getting more and more women, then they, the means were less savory at times. Yeah. And so then... What we have, and this is actually going to reflect sort of the population numbers that we know that were used. So then they start expanding out. And because they're located at that particular moment in China, they start bringing in Chinese women. Now, this is important to note that at the time, Japanese feeling was that all other races were lower on the hierarchy than the Japanese. All other cultures were lower on the hierarchy than the Japanese. So there was this sort of feeling... And you would actually see signs and things posted that, you know, even that Chinese women weren't worth anything to begin with by the nature of them being Chinese. But what happens is they start sending kind of classic trafficking things. They post messages asking people to come to be nurses. They post signs for factory work. They put out calls for sort of housemaids. And when the women arrive, they're taken. This also happens with Japanese women to a slayer, to a smaller extent. They're they're called out for to be nurses or to be workers in the camps, you know, cooks and things. And then when they arrive, they're taken. But probably I think one of the worst examples that really, really upsets me is one of the things that they did is they went, the Japanese did, is they, they went to a particular minority group, the Hui. Because Hui, men, Hui women in China are considered to be quite pretty. And they told the girls there, we have reports as young as 11, that they were establishing a school for Hui girls. And they took these girls, and instead of sending them to school, they took them immediately to be comfort women. And what it is to be a comfort woman, let's not beat around the bush about it, is to be, I mean, the Japanese military recorded them in the same way in their ledger books that they recorded toilets. You are a unit. You are a thing to be used by soldiers until you outlive your usefulness and then you're gone. And so that means that you are to be raped or to be had sex with until such a time that you're dead or you can no longer have sex. And so we have reports of people who are reporting when I say mass rape, I just don't mean like rape every day. I mean like 35, 40 rapes per day, all day, every day, forced abortion, forced beatings. It's it's terrible. To so people who were, in many cases, children. Yeah, and this is where it's gonna. It's obviously starting to get disturbing. And uh, I'm going to bring in some different quotes here. Mm -hmm. So this was later... But this really ties into what JJ is talking about. So this was a former army accounting officer 
He was studying at the Japanese Military Accounting School, and this was in an interview. Quote, At that time, we had to figure out the endurance of the women drafted from local areas and the rate at which they would wear out. We also had to determine which areas supplied women who would work best and how much service time should be allocated to a man from the time he entered the room until he left. How many minutes for commissioned officers? How many minutes for non-commissioned officers? And how many minutes for soldiers? Laughter at that point in the interview. Continuing. The fees were also decided based on different ranks. Regulations regarding these were called the essentials for the establishment of PA facilities, mm -hmm. which were taught at the Army's accounting school. I mean, just reading that is appalling and horrifying to me. It's they're turning rape into calculus. It's, it's mainly that endurance part, the idea that they actually had a calculated replacement rate, and that's partially what the numbers are based on. Yeah. And the numbers have, you know, initially were as low as 30,000, and then people started to agree on 100,000 to 200,000 women. And now people think they've way underestimated China, and so now they're thinking it could have been as high as 400,000 women. And part of what's difficult is... I mean, lots of women died, and they don't even have any idea really how many. Mm -hmm. And as we talk about what happened after the Japanese military withdrawal, is that a lot of women died after, either from sexually transmitted diseases, mm -hmm. other blood illnesses that they picked up as a result of the rape and mistreatment. Many committed suicide, and we do have reports, and we're going to mention that, um, that some were actually killed by their families, too, because we're dealing with something that was considered deeply shameful by a culture. Yeah, and there's just so much content here. We're, we'll uh, weave it all in. One of the two sentences that really say it well in the introduction to Legacies of the Comfort Women of World War II by Margaret Stetz and Bonnie O. is, To consider, therefore, the comfort women as having any legacy to give is to begin by assigning value to women who have been designated in multiple contexts as without value. They were chosen for systematic rape in the first place because they were seen as worthless and afterward defined as worthless because they had been raped. And unfortunately, with sexual slavery and sex trafficking, that still can be true. And so to kind of maybe jump back into the, to the wide view is that after starting to pull Chinese women, they start to pull Korean women because they are also at that time occupying Korea they pull in Taiwanese women I know a lot of people tend to put Taiwan and China together but they do consider themselves to be two separate ethnic groups so Taiwanese women uh, Manchuko which is now referred to as Manchuria and is part of China but at the time was part, was a Japanese colony uh, well an occupied Japanese colony the people there and the ethnic minority groups maintained within there beyond just the Manchurians and then when that started to narrow in terms of getting women and getting people in via via trickery, via these means of like mm -hmm. newspaper advertisements, they went straight for looting. So you have widespread kidnapping. You actually have reports of soldiers just sweeping into towns, taking all of the women and sweeping out. And no one knowing whatever happened to these women or where they were going. So... 
there were unofficial comfort stations that happened before 1937, but that's when it became official policy of the, the Japanese government or Japanese military. And there, there was the uh, Nanking mass massacre. There was mass rape of Chinese. And so one of the things the army recognized, to quote from a document, quote, the Chinese value honor very highly and for appearances sake, treat their wives with respect. Among all immoral and violent acts, the Chinese regard rape to be the worst and consider it an extremely serious social problem. Mm -hmm. So they decided, okay, we need to deal with this and yeah, preventing mass rape, preventing venereal disease, gratifying their sexual desires as a, Another quote here would be, and this was from 1932, but that I have considered many policy options for resolving the troops' sexual problems and have set to work on realizing that goal. That there's just multiple instances where they're, they're trying to deal with these situations and it's not about how do we treat people better, but it's how do we avoid issues and keep our troops content and have our army be effective. Uh, the, the other one that was important was uh, security reasons, that if you control the brothel, then you don't have to worry about spies as much. And uh, there's other things, but I'll hand it to, back to JJ. Yeah, so what I want to make clear is that while the vast majority of women, at least that we know about, were coming from Korea and China, and then later the Philippines, once uh, Japan got control of the Philippines, Women were used in these comfort stations that came from Burma, Thailand, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, which at the time was known as the Dutch East Indies, and we'll talk about the sort of Dutch concern in a second, uh, Timor, Malaysia, and then there are some reports of people from Hong Kong, Macau, and French Indochina. There were also a small number of European women taken from the Netherlands and Australia. Mm-hmm. These women were taken while in the Dutch East Indies. Modern Indonesia. Yeah, while in Indonesia. And while we have only reports of 15 of these European women who were taken and then were used specifically to service uh, high-ranking military officials, they were considered to be reserved for the elites. Because again, as I'm talking about that Japanese racial hierarchy, it kind of went Japanese, Westerners other East Asian, you know, and, and so on and so forth. And so when we're talking about all of these different comfort stations that existed in all of the different places that were occupied or had large sort of groupings of Japanese soldiers, you're also having women that are being forced to move from place to place. So you may have a comfort station in Thailand that has not just Thai women, but also Vietnamese women, Taiwanese women, Chinese women, Korean women. You have a mix. You might have women in Korea in a comfort station that are Korean, but also Filipino, also Burmese. Uh, oh, and what I neglected from the previous list, I'm sorry, and also New Guinean women. And I just think that that's important to bring up because we do talk a lot as little as we talk about comfort women, when we do talk about comfort women, we tend to talk about them from the Chinese, the Korean, or the Philippine perspective. Mm -hmm. And there were lots of women taken from some of these quote-unquote smaller principalities and in smaller populations 
but they were nevertheless taken. And after the Japanese withdrawal, a lot of them were left behind in whatever comfort station they had been sent to. So we do have reports of things like Burmese women who were in comfort stations in the Korean Peninsula having to try and like work and beg to get their way home. They were just left there. And so you have just this repeated victimization of people. And then for them not to be acknowledged and for Japan to only acknowledge those that seem to have large enough countries with large enough economies to continuously fight and push, i.e. Korea, China, and the Philippines, is, I think, super insulting. Like, why don't we acknowledge the Australian or the Burmese or the New Guinean or the Macauian people? Or just this host of list of people who were deeply, deeply hurt by this. And so that's sort of our, our wide view, is that the Japanese government was basically targeting any woman that they could to get into a comfort station in order to serve their population for what Seth quoted was to keep, to solve this problem of Japanese soldiers uh, going wild in brothels or raping the local population. But this is weird to me because at the same time, the Japanese military hadn't accepted three alls, quote unquote, three alls proposition, which was burn all, loot all, kill all. The order of that changes sometimes depending on where you're citing it. But this idea that kill everybody, burn everything, nothing is sacred, loot everything. This is how you're going to break the spirit of the people who you're occupying. And that mixed with the normalization of rape, I posit, via the comfort woman stations, led to just mass looting and raping by the Japanese military. And I want to be really clear that rape via the Japanese military, like, for example, what happened on a wide scale in Nanking. Mass murder mixed in with mass rape of civilians. That's not a comfort woman situation because that's just mass rape. Comfort woman is the act- is is when it's the actual structured kidnapping and removal of women or trafficking of women for the purposes of sexual slavery. So it's just whether it was formalized or not. But even I have to admit, it seems terrible that we have to have like two categories. Yeah, there's so many directions to go here. To your earlier point, there is a document from the Ministry of War from 1940 called Measures to Enhance Military Discipline in Light of the Experiences of the China Incident. And there's one part that sticks out. So it is necessary to restore order in the areas affected by the China incident, give careful consideration to the setting up of comfort facilities, and attend to restraining and pacifying savage feelings and lust. The emotional effects of sexual comfort stations on soldiers should be considered the most critical. So good for morale. And there were variances in the length of comfort stations in in uh, who run them, whether they were officially Japanese military or whether they were subcontracted to private actors. And the servicing varied a little bit, but I'll, I'll give you a low and a high example. Mm-hmm. So from the Philippines, where 
recruiting tended to be more direct. In other words, the Japanese military didn't pretend so much that it wasn't just taking people. There, a woman would service, in other words, be raped five to ten times a day. Victims generally didn't receive any pay. In the Philippines, they weren't paid. Sometimes, in other places, they got meager salaries, which were a joke for what was happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes they also had to cook and clean. And uh, they also tended to be very young. The average age in the Philippines was 17. And there were multiple times where they hadn't begun to men- men- menstruate or got pregnant and didn't realize that they could even get pregnant. In another region outside the Philippines, each woman had to serve 20 to 40 men a day at a rate of a man every 30 minutes or sometimes even 10 to 15 minutes per soldier. In the morning, rank-and-filed soldiers would queue up outside a woman's room. Afternoons would be reserved for middle-ranking officers and the evening hours for higher-ranking officers. Commanders of a military unit or the camp where the comfort station existed monopolized the overnight stay privileged. I want to get back to that queue. There are a number of narratives that you can read, and uh, I'll be linking to some books, and and JJ will also have some additional links where there are some narratives. And the idea of a queue is a common one. Yeah, it gets mentioned a lot that there's this constant line. And also the timing, too, of who got to go when remains Mm -hmm. pretty consistent throughout the narratives. And there's a sense where, where men will get frustrated and... It, it, it's it's like an assembly line. So as bad as normal sex trafficking, if you've heard any modern sex trafficking stories where the, there's lots that's horrid, but even ones I've read are usually not quite an assembly line. It's, it's more spread out, even if it's a lot. Whereas, I mean, this is a churn where, where women are reporting soreness, bleeding, who sometimes are permanently physically damaged after just months. This is a very brutal form of sexual slavery. Like, there's no sugarcoating it. This is very... I'm I'm, I'm struggling with words, so JJ's going to speak. So in 1990, and I want to clarify something really quickly. I mentioned earlier that, like, 10 to 15 European women. That was incorrect on my end. It's 10 to 15 Dutch women, and I'm actually going to cite one of them. There was probably about they say on the high end 300 european women who were who were in this so i apologize for conflating those two but one of those dutch women in 1990 jan ruffle testified to a u.s house of representatives committee and i'm just gonna quote a small small piece of her testimony which is phenomenal and i will link to you below but but warning you're gonna need kleenexes but it ends with i was systematically beaten and raped day and night even the Japanese doctor raped me each time he visited the brothel to examine us for venereal disease. These women had no one to go to, no one to ask for help, nothing. And again, because you have a mix of women in all these camps from different places, different cultures, different languages, they can't even communicate with one another in many cases. You also have a mix So in Korea, uh, most of the Korean women who were taken were poor. In China, you have a focus first on ethnic minorities. Uh, The Hui women, for example, are Muslim, generally, in extraction. Followed by 
middle class type, uh, women because they were considered because they had bound feet. People who were poor in China didn't have bound feet at the time because you needed to work, but they had bound feet so they couldn't run away. To Philippine women who were a mix of poor to middle class, to Japanese women, some of whom responded to ads to be nurses who had medical training. So you just run the gauntlet with this, which tells me very clearly, and I think makes it very clear that the response was the Japanese army just wanted women. And they wanted women that they could rape because they didn't count. Yeah, and it, like, in terms of rape, like, like they were fucking them. Like, there's really yeah. no other way to put it. Like, go in, put the penis in the vagina, ejaculate, leave. Well, yeah, because you had a set timer because it was all systematized. I'm going to quote again... So this is from a historian who was looking specifically at the conversation that was held in Papua New Guinea. Okay. And he looked at a quote that was recorded by a POW who was there. And the quote was from the surgeon, the Japanese naval surgeon who was stationed there and was supposed to care for these women. And he wrote in his memoirs that the women continued to work through infection and severe discomfort, though they cried and begged for help. And so we're not reading a quote from this because I, it's too much, but I will be linking to it. And the one particular narrative that I'm referencing is that of a Chinese woman who reports being forced to have an abortion in the morning and then being forced to serve as men in the evening. They, they were waiting for people to die because they knew they could get more and they could get more women because they were at that point gobbling up territory and there was always going to be more women to grab. And that, to me, is insane. It's insane that so many Japanese soldiers participated in it. I think we all like to pretend or, or tell ourselves. It's the thing that, like, we all want to think that we're Captain America, right? And if we were in World War II, we'd be out smashing Nazis and secreting people away. And the reality is that most of us would just behave passively or go with the flow for what for whatever reason. And and that, to me, is is nonsense the other thing that i do want to throw in that kind of just as a little nod to sort of modern human trafficking as we know it is and this just to me adds to the psychological damage that was done to women is that in a lot of cases particularly i'm thinking one particular case in the philippines that i'll link to these women would be charged every time the doctor came to see them or they would be charged if they needed clothes or they would be charged for firewood or they'd be charged for food so while they're being raped day in and day out, and they're also being beaten and brutalized in other ways, they're accumulating debt that the Japanese army says that they have to pay in order to get home. Now, how they're supposed to make up this money, I, who knows? But it, to me, it just seems like another method of control, another way to break someone psychologically, that you need us for everything, and yet we're going to treat you like this. Speaking of clothes... Some of the Japanese comfort women were given Japanese robes. Mm -hmm. Some of the Korean women were given Japanese robes or uniforms. So sometimes there was dress-up involved. But then there were Chinese women who were not given any clothes, who yeah. only had the clothes that they were given, which would get turned into rags. And it also happened that there were women who, when they were being raped, would just be on their backs, naked, the entire time. Bleeding. Every day. Yeah. It's hard to fathom. So maybe to talk just a little bit about when 
Japan starts to lose the war and starts to pull out or starts to lose rather to, to kind of go slowly territories first when, when the U S and other countries start engaging in Island hopping, they start losing these comfort stations. And what happens is kind of three, one of three things tends to happen. One soldiers kill the comfort women. They want this erased, which tells me again, you knew it wasn't okay. <laughs> you knew this was wrong because you're eliminating the source of this future shame for yourself. And and the ways that they killed these women were, were again, brutal. They were forced off cliffs. There's reports of them putting them all into like a room or to a hole and tossing a hand grenade, burning houses, you know, putting them all into a hut and burning it down. Just, just horrific, horrific things. So that's one thing that happened. The second thing was, is that they had engaged too in these mass propaganda campaigns, the Japanese military and slash government had during the war that Westerners, particularly Americans were cannibals. They would eat you. They would rape you to death. They would murder you or that they were demons. And so a lot of people and comfort women are included on this, but like also like just villagers or other civilians, they handed out cyanide pills. Or they handed out knives and things that could be used for suicide. And so people did commit suicide, but I don't necessarily know if I consider that to be true. Su- I, I think it's murder. I, It's mandated murder <laughs> through psychological means. And then the third thing that happened is they just would cut them off. They would just leave and abandon them. So imagine that you're a heavily victimized woman. You're malnourished. You've been beaten every day. You've been raped every day. You're sick. There's not there's not a single narrative of a comfort woman I've ever read that doesn't involve someone who is almost immediately ill via venereal disease or some sort of bloodborne illness or malaria, pneumonia, something to that effect. And then one day they just leave and they leave you in a hut on an island somewhere. And that to me is weird for, for a number of reasons, but they were just left to die. It was, it was literally like just abandoning a piece of equipment that wasn't important anymore. And maybe what I'll end with in terms of like the final thing is that there were reports in Burma in particular that when the army pulled out and killed the women, the comfort women, they were such in need of food that they did resort to cannibalism of the comfort women. And I will, I will link to that particular story, but it seems to be that something that's tied to Burma directly. And the narratives that come out of that all come out of pe- Burmese soldiers who, Burmese and, and allied soldiers who later captured these Japanese soldiers. So it's not a super clear narrative, but honestly, at this point, like, I hate to say it, but like, we're already living in Hannibal Lecter land. Why not go full? full-on horror movie it, it doesn't seem out of the realm of possibility to me that if you treat a person completely like an object or a piece of livestock that it wouldn't really bother you that much told you guys this wasn't gonna be fun i was thinking war is hell i was, I was yeah researching that this there's a lot that was bad in world war ii <sighs> there's a few other things to get to i 
did want us to read a narrative selection from Maria Rosa Henson, mm -hmm. who was a comfort woman, uh, comfort woman in the Philippines. She's Filipina, and she actually was later in the war, January 1943 to or, no, April 1943, January 1944, about nine months. I'm amazed she survived. But uh, to be honest, the narrative part part there's a lot of details, but to actually get a sense of like what is this like, and yeah. I felt this was a pretty good example. So go ahead. All right. I was given a small room with a bamboo bed. The room had no door, only a curtain. Japanese soldiers kept watch in the hall outside. That night, nothing happened to me. The following day was hell. Without warning, a Japanese soldier entered my room and pointed his bayonet at my chest. I thought he was going to kill me, but he used his bayonet to slash my dress and tear it open. I was too frightened to scream. And then he raped me. When he was done, other soldiers came into my room, and they took turns raping me. Twelve soldiers raped me in quick succession, after which I was given a half hour to rest. Then twelve more soldiers followed. They all lined up outside the room, waiting for their turn. I bled so much and was in so much pain, I could not even stand up. The next morning, I was too weak to get up. I could not eat. I felt much pain, and my vagina was swollen. I cried and cried, calling my mother. I could not resist the soldiers because they might kill me. So what else could I do? Every day from two in the afternoon to ten in the evening, the soldiers lined up outside my room and the rooms of the six other women there. I did not even have time to wash after each assault. At the end of the day, I just closed my eyes and cried. My torn dress would be brittle from the crust that had formed from the soldiers' dried semen. I washed myself with hot water and a piece of cloth so I would be clean. I pressed the cloth to my vagina like a compress to relieve the pain and the swelling. I lay on the bed with my knees up and my feet on the mat, as if I were giving birth. Once, there was a soldier who was in such a hurry to come that he ejaculated even before he entered me. He was very angry, and he grabbed my hand and forced me to fondle his genitals. But it was no use, because he could not become erect again. Another soldier was waiting for his turn outside the room and started banging on the wall. The man had no choice but to leave, but before going out, he hit my breast and pulled my hair. It was an experience I often had. Whenever the soldiers did not feel satisfied, they vented their anger on me. The next day, the doctor came and confirmed that I had malaria. I was allowed to rest for a week. I was given two yellow tablets to take twice a day, but I still got malaria attacks every other day. After a week of taking the medicine, I began bleeding profusely. The Japanese doctor was not there, so Captain Tanaka found a Filipino doctor. He told me that I had had a miscarriage. When I had learned that I had lost a child, I began wondering how that was possible, as I had not yet begun to menstruate. And who was the father? A week after my miscarriage, I was put back to work again. There was some time between the malaria and the initial rapes, but that's, mm -hmm. as I say, it gives you a sense of... This isn't fake emotion, by the way. No, this is... I'm... Yeah, we're not being radio people. It's here's here's the thing is that this is in, insane testimony that happened, but this is normal testimony. When you go through and you look at the testimony of the women who were kids, she hadn't had her period yet. 
you can't legally smoke and this is happening to you and it keeps happening and all of the narratives we have from women after a while the 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 few it, it took a while for for people to come out and start giving their narratives publicly but the narratives we have from women who are like this they all match this they all follow sort of in this line just like this brutality becomes normalized and that to me is when this starts to become like banal then you're like oh god it really was that terrible and that's why the we apologize if you know something may have kind of sort of happened from the japanese government is absolutely other utter bullshit considering they ran the thing they instituted it and it failed at its goals they had it a didn't Q stop system. it didn't stop rape mm -hmm. outside of the comfort stations venereal disease was rampant inside and outside there were certain rules, like you're supposed to use condoms, and the women's were washed, but then practice that often didn't happen no. because you're, again, going through a churn. And uh, to quote one phrase, which you may have heard in relation to other things, but uh, Dr. Esu Tetsuo, a doctor, is given credit for coming up with the term public toilet, Kyoto Benjo, to refer to comfort women. And that comfort women, it, that the it's that the comfort stations should not become a place of hedonistic pleasure, but it ought to be a hygienic public toilet. What's the first rule of being a doctor? Do no harm. It's, and then so, here's maybe maybe to kind of wrap up this sad dumpster fire of history. Is in 1994, in case you were thinking that this is all behind us. The Japanese government, in response to sort of mass reports and sort of these narratives starting to come out as people get older and they feel more comfortable about what had happened and what had been done to them, they set up something called the Asian Women's Fund, the AWF. And again, this is bullshit because it's said that it's a public-private fund to provide compensation to South Korea, the Philippines, Taiwan, the Netherlands, and Indonesia. For the, for the comfort women, specifically, or women identified as being comfort women. number of reasons why this is nonsense. One, it's no money coming from the government. This was all private donations. This is individual Japanese citizens paying into this fund because they feel that these women should have been given compensation. So these are Japanese citizens. This leaves out the Japanese women who are victimized and the women from all the other countries that were pulled in. And were used that are not Korea, the Philippines, Taiwan, the Netherlands, and Indonesia. Which, interestingly enough, are, minus China, the bigger, more ties to Western countries, better economies. Those are the ones that are getting the attention. They also then provided to 61 Korean, 13 Taiwanese, 211 Filipino, and 79 Dutch former comfort woman, a signed apology. And that was it. When it came time to collect money from these funds, most women who were identified publicly as comfort women said, no, we're not taking your blood money. This isn't a real apology. You're not actually acknowledging what we did. And until we're in your history books as a thing that you did, 
we're not taking anything from you. And also this money isn't from the government. It's from the people of Japan. And that's a little bit different. It's that it wasn't the, is that it wasn't being recognized as a government institution that had been used against them. Uh, eventually some comfort women did accept it. And it was the equivalent of about $42,000 now for, for a lifetime of to not be able to have children yep. to live with shame that some of them never told mm -hmm. their family yep. or anybody or waited years before doing so. And remember that for a lot of these, these countries that are coming from like a, an East Asian sort of Confucian type the theology or philosophy background, being able to have children is really important. It, it doesn't just sort of define you as a woman. It's important for your family's ability. And so people had this immense sense of shame. And whole communities didn't talk about it. That's why we don't know how many women there were because we lost, so many were lost due to suicide or infections after the fact. So what happens in, I mean, I will say that you have individual countries, for example, South Korea, uh, Papua New Guinea, Burma, who provide funds to women identified as comfort women that is their own citizenry, but this isn't coming from Japan. That's, that's government aid to its own citizens. So what happens in 1991, right around the time of the anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attack, is three Korean women who are comfort women sue the Japanese government for forced prostitution. And they use what has now become, what had just become available, which were U.S. military documents that they had taken from the Japanese. So for those of you who are unfamiliar, government documents all the time get declassified, normally in big chunks, because normally there's they're set like 10-year, 50-year, whatever type time period. So these women and their solicitor had come across like a chunk of declassified information that definitively showed that the Japanese government had participated in setting up this forced prostitution. So they sued the Japanese government. They issued an apology. The Japanese government said, that said, we cannot deny that the former Japanese army played a role. And we would like to express our apologies in contrition. That to me is not enough. In 2007, the surviving sex slaves from Korea asked for another, uh, like a formal apology, like done on state television that acknowledged all of them, not just the three women that had sued. They initially said no. Then on March 27th, there was an official apology, which we'll link. But then they decided that they would maybe reconsider the apology. And this is still not something taught in Japanese schools or widely acknowledged by the Japanese media or government officials. So it felt kind of stupid and, and not there. You then have the Japanese saying that maybe we'll provide some money and some apology to the Korean women, but that's it. Again, it's still very Japan and Korea orchestrated. There has been no return of funds to Chinese women. This despite the fact that in 1994, uh, 16 Chinese women sued the Japanese government and they were told that the statute of limitations had passed. So for me, it's, it's kind of insane. You do have, maybe if we are going to end this on a positive note, the one positive note we can is that if you listen to this and you're horrified and you want to do something 
I will say that there are a number of nursing homes that run. I only know of the one in Korea, which Seth mentioned is, is in the film The Apology, which is called The House of Sharing. They also run, they accept donations and they run a series of outreach programs for one in other countries. There is also at Shanghai Normal University, they have an institute for comfort women. It's the, the Institute of Study for, of Comfort Women. Uh, kind of think of it as kind of like a, a Holocaust center. They, they study what happened to prevent it from happening again and to collect as many narratives as you can. They are always running side projects or other things. So if you would like to donate, they, I'm sure, would, would love for you to do so. The problem is that for the other nations, I did look into this. You kind of have to go on a case-by-case, country-by-country basis to try and see if there are victim interactions or victim services. Hong Kong has a small center that deals with it, as does Macau. I could not find anything for things like Papua New Guinea or or Burma. I did find uh, a public fund in the Philippines that you can go into. So if you're welcome to do some Google Foo, if you send me something, we'll add it to the, the listing on this podcast for, for where donations can go to. Or the other option is find your local sort of anti-trafficking agency and donate your time, your money, your expertise. Because while it's not happening to this degree, this sort of thing is still happening in the world. Well, in this kind of cognitive dissonance where we countries and leaders don't want to take ownership, and the U.S. is not guiltless in this. We, we, I mean, we barely talk about internment of Japanese, which is not this, but it's pretty bad. We kind of brush off American slavery and how bad it was at times. The main point being being able to recognize that you were abused by a system or a, con- a part of a country, a military, a government. Having that acknowledged is a powerful thing. And for us all to improve and move on as peoples, you, you, you don't move on by pretending that something didn't happen and getting mad when somebody brings it up. You acknowledge it. You, you embrace, we failed here. And we're, we're going to not do that again because we're facing the darkness in our past. And we're owning that our relatives or fathers or forebears failed. And we're not going to keep going down that road. And so maybe then I'll end with, too, something that just started to come out in the 2000s that is still not talked about when we talk about comfort women, because there's so little known about it, because we only have really two or three narratives that come out of it. And that was that there weren't just comfort women. There were comfort, quote unquote, comfort gays, too. Um, In 2000, uh, a documentary film came out called uh, Markova, Comfort Gay, about Walterina Markova, who was a Filipino man, who was a, a drag performer, slash was kind of going through now. I, I He was defined as a drag performer. I don't know necessarily now if we would define him as a trans individual, but considered himself a gay man and was taken by the Japanese military in the Philippines to serve as a comfort gay with 16 other men. So he was fantastic. He died at the age of 81. 
in 2005. He was a super amazing guy. <laughs> Tons of interesting stories about his life. But one one of the things I think is great is that he's was the first person to come out and say that there were homosexual men or men being forced to be used as a comfort object, as a sexual object during the war. And when you think about the time that this was happening too, where like homosexuality was not widely accepted or even talked about and where we live in a society still where male rape is still not talked about. That's fantastic that he, that he was brave enough or strong enough to come out and say it, but how many other men or how many other boys also underwent this. So moving forward, I think it's important that we acknowledge that we probably will never know everyone who was harmed via sort of the comfort woman or the, or the PIA system, but that there was mass human suffering. And if just not talking about it, isn't going to make that go away. And with that, I think, I think we're going to end. Be kind to yourselves out there, people. Our next podcast will not nearly be so heavy, but sometimes the heavy things are important. Go look at cats and puppies. Yeah. Have a prayer. Have a, have a puppy. Have a beer. You know, do whatever you need to do. Thanks for thanks for listening and being with us, guys. We appreciate it. All right. Bye. Bye, everyone. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.